With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It is time for this week's edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, your host, and I'm joined by Mr. Terry Pluto. Hey, Terry, what's going on? Hello there, David. <laughs> hey, um, we got a lot to get into today. And one of the things that we have been talking about the last couple of weeks is our survey where we asked our listeners to tell us like uh, things we can try for the podcast. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that today. So I thought we'd break it into two parts and maybe just do some quick overview stuff uh, and spend a minute on that. And then we're going to get into the Cavaliers. I know you want to talk about um, Carlos Carrasco and why he is so important for the Guardians. Uh, the Browns have finalized their coaching staff, so we have a lot to get into. We also have a couple of fan letters from our 100th episode, some good stories that we'll get to at the end. So, But anyway, Terry, um, the survey taught me something important, which is we have some amazing listeners, yep. <laughs> which we already knew. But we had 114 people respond to this survey, and just – like I said, we'll get into kind of the thoughtful responses next week, but just real quick, um, we asked people, how often do you listen to the Terry's Talking podcast? 77.9% said every week, and another 16.2% said pretty often. So we've got some pretty loyal listeners, which I think we also knew. Um, we asked people, what do you think of the theme music? And let's see, 48.5% said they like it, and 44% said they don't care. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's now, those 90%. Are my, those are my kind of people. It's like, okay, you know, it, it's sort of like they bring you the cake, you look at the frosting, and then you look at even what's written on the cake, and then all of a sudden you just look at it, it's a birthday cake, and there's the candles, and they're lit up, but maybe you don't care, but you really don't care what color the candles are. You just want to blow out the candles and eat the cake. <laughs> that's right. Actually, these are pie charts, but they could be cake charts. So I guess that's this all right. ties in. So um, we asked people what, when it comes to the mix of the show, which of these statements do you most agree with? And 85% said they like the mix the way it is. The second most popular was 13%. I'd like to hear Terry and David talk more about sports and less about themselves and stuff they do. So like 90, 97, 98% want to hear us uh, either keep it the way it is or talk more sports. So I think we... We probably had a pretty good idea with that. And this was the most interesting one, Terry. I, we asked people, uh, most of the podcasts run 50 to 60 minutes. What would you prefer? 73.5% of people said the podcasts are pretty much the right length and they're good with it. And another 17% said the podcast should be longer. So if you add that up, that's like 90% of people who say it should be the same length or longer. And we had 8.8% who said they should be shorter. So I thought okay. that was really interesting. So anyway, anything surprised you there? Anything you want to – any other food you want to – you're making me hungry with the talk about cake. Any other any other food stuff we want to get into? Well, I mean the podcast is really modeled after the Terry's talking thing on Sunday where I usually deal with at least two teams and sometimes three. 
I was glad that the guy, you know, once in a while I use the old Jimmy Cannon line, nobody asked me, but I'm glad that guy that when I wrote said, nobody asked me, but, but why didn't you retire five years ago? I'm glad <laughs> that guy didn't uh, come in. My guess is he's probably not tuning in or maybe he is. Um, and I just think that people want information. That's one of the things there. They don't want to hear people screaming. They don't want to hear a bunch of profanity. This is some of the stuff that I get feedback from uh, when I run into people. Uh, they like some of our, my guess is our audience is a little older. Uh, they like some of the nostalgia stuff. And um, some people did mention uh, that I should, we should mention what, at least what the faith coming, faith column coming up is. We kind of got away from that. And, uh, and also, the books too. And the books. Yeah. Well, I'm going to do the book right now. Okay. Uh, let's do it. I was going to save it till the end, but let's I do forget, it now. Before I forget, um, I've discovered a writer named Stephen L. Carter, and he's a, law professor from Yale who's also written a bunch of thrillers um, and is a fascinating guy. He wrote one called The Impeachment of Abraham Lincoln. And so you go, how would that ever happen? Well, his premise was that Lincoln survived being shot. And then what he did, and remember this guy is a law professor historian, he looked at all the and charges in the impeachment, Andrew Johnson is the guy that took over after Lincoln was killed, and they impeached him. Now, he survived by one vote, but his contention is that many of the same things that they went after Johnson, they would have went after Lincoln. For example, there was a strong a lot of people in the Congress who felt that Lincoln was too soft on the South. Well, this is the same charge for Johnson. Then there were, of course, people in the South coming back in were still mad at Lincoln for basically beating him in the Civil War and imposing a lot of uh, uh, African-American voting rights, all this kind of stuff down in the South. So it, it, it's a fascinating look at this stuff. It, it combines two of my favorite things, which is I love the Civil War. Uh, I'm fascinated by Lincoln and his legacy. And then also kind of how impeachment works. And, and you think now, you know, all the underhanded dealings and stuff that we hear in the politics, this is a classic thing that everything is new, but actually it's very old. <laughs> We've heard that before. So, and he's written some other books. I'm, I'm reading one now, uh, a novel called uh, The uh, uh, the Prince of, uh, oh, never mind. Uh, my, it escapes me, but uh, the really good thing about Carter is I think he's a fun writer to read. And uh, so give it a try if you want something different. And you're right, Terry, especially with historical books like that. Sometimes when people do the what if exercise, you learn more mm -hmm. about what was going on and the people involved than you do from the actual thing that happened. Because there's things that play out. There's things that uh, conflicts that never happened that would that reveal kind of new things. I, I think it's really interesting that, that that he combined the two, you know, with with Lincoln and what happened if he would have survived and been impeached. That's probably a really fascinating. I mean, book. basically, you're just dropping Lincoln in for Andrew Johnson is really what, that's yeah, what he was wrote. Yeah. He said, I just took a bunch of the things there that they said about Johnson and it would have been Lincoln. The novel that I'm reading now is The Emperor of Ocean Park by Stephen O. Carter. That's more of a um, a, a modern one. And so now his books are long and, and I'm actually usually not one to read like really long five or 600 page books, but I just find them compelling. So there you go. All right. 
Well, we'll keep this uh, in the podcast. Every week we'll do a book and, and we'll, we'll talk about some more of the things that we saw in the survey next week and we'll just kind of maybe do topic by topic. So, again, thank you, everybody, for writing. We, we really learned a lot about what uh, what's working for you, what you'd like to see. So we appreciate all the time you took and uh, we'll get more into it as the weeks go on here. So, all right, Terry, getting into sports. The Cleveland Cavaliers, they were on the All-Star break this weekend and I, I think we want to talk about the All-Star game for a minute, right? <laughs> Because I hate I, it. I never watch it. <laughs> I haven't watched one for decades. And this is one of those things where I don't think my life is worse for it. So Adam Silver felt exactly the same way from the things I've been reading. I mean, they set a point record. The total of 397 points smashed the record of 374 set in, in 2017. The East team made 42 three-pointers. That, that was a so record. Broke the record at 35. Carl Anthony Towns scored 50 points in 28 minutes for the West and was not given the MVP award because they didn't win. Um, Halliburton, after the game, said, obviously, it wasn't high intensity at all. No. (laughs) And Larry Bird was there and and was interviewed before the game, and, and he said, you know, I think I have the quote here. He says, I know what this league is all about, and I'm very proud of it. I'm proud of today's players. I like the game they play. I think it's very important when you have the best players in the world together, you've got to compete, and you've got to play hard, and you've got to show the fans how good you really are. But we didn't see that. We saw the Washington Generals times two pretty much, right? I'd rather – seriously, compared to that garbage, I would rather watch the the Cavs in the Summer League. You know, those kids were playing hard. The basketball was pretty good. Of course, it turned out to be a preview for Sam Merrill and some others. There was meaning behind those games. I don't know how you create meaning in the games when you really have just turned it on the show business. Um, and so, uh, but that's what they do. So I've been trying anyway, to think, like, to, what what else? To... What instead? What what could they do instead? There's nothing. Because, you know, we were talking a couple of weeks ago, back in the day, the All-Star Game and the World Series money mm-hmm. and, and NBA Finals money mattered to these guys. They needed it. But these guys are making so much money that what's the what's the incentive? The incentive other than pride of the game, like Larry Bird was talking about. There's, I, I keep thinking about: Do they want to do a three on three like the NHL? Do they want to like it's it's so hard. Baseball is only the only good All Star game, really, if you think mm-hmm. about it. And I think because that kind of highlights individual matchups and and that because you don't. When you play the baseball all-star game, it's still it's sort of baseball. You just don't get ridiculous. I mean, a pitcher doesn't want to go out and give up four straight home runs like Lucas Giolito would do with Cleveland. <laughs> I mean, seriously, he doesn't want that, even in the all-star game. Where in the bat, in the in the NBA all-star game, they don't care if nobody guards anybody or they'll sit on the floor. It's ridiculous. So I don't have a, a remedy for it. You know what it is? It's the NBA's convention uh, where they create a lot of, things there maybe they just should just have all the sideshows and forget the game entirely but I'm, i have to i have to admit uh you know we just spent three minutes of this talking about the nba all-star game and i think we kind of wasted three minutes of our lives i'm very <laughs> serious i mean it's just well we'll never get those back david um, all right terry well and, i know, do want to mention not that harsh <laughs> yes go ahead so you can put i know you want to put it in your calendar next year's game is on february 16th and it's going to be in san francisco so you can put that in your calendar so you're ready to watch so all right terry back to competitive basketball the cavaliers yes. 36 and 17 they're playing at a 679 clip i think they're on pace for 55 Ooh. or 56 wins um 
number two in the East right now. I think they're two and a half games of the Bucks, two and a half games ahead of the Bucks as we tape this late on Tuesday afternoon, and six behind Boston. Uh, you've been writing the last few days about what you want to see from the Cavs going down the rest of the way here, and I, I think you should talk about that. A lot of people are focused on how the offense is running and how, how the ball is being shared and the three-point shooting, but you, you brought up some different points. Where would you like to start? I guess defense, right? Mm -hmm. You spent a lot of time writing about defense, and and that's something that's always been important to you as a basketball purist. The opposite of the NBA All-Star game is what we want to see. It it really is because (laughs) um, they've been able to change their style and shoot more three-pointers and that kind of stuff without losing that defensive identity that J.B. Bickerstaff built up. Um, By the way, I do sort of sense – Bickerstaff has kind of run into Kevin Stefanski territory of when things go well, it's uh, in spite of him. And when they don't go well, it's because of him. Because that's what I've been getting emails on. Really? And still, yeah, I still get those. I'm like, because they're still about stuck on the what happened against the Knicks. And then now they're dragging up the play-in tournament, too. It's like, okay, um, you want to go down that road, fine. Uh, But that's... It, it just misses the point of trying to rebuild a franchise after LeBron and how difficult it is. And when you're in a market like this where you're not going to have uh, be able to attract big free agents. so uh, And also the defensive identity is, is so critical to this team because I don't want them running around just shooting threes and not getting back to defend. And I don't want them to lose that the fact that um, – not only do Mobley and Allen uh, play good defensively, they're big men, but if you play, if you're also playing well defensively, you can take your time and make sure they get the ball. Not everybody has to shoot a three pointer all the time. So I'm, uh, I'm just, I'm very, very upbeat about the whole thing. And I would just want to want to see how more. Um, I, I didn't believe that I would actually say this, but Evan Mobley's jumper, looks so much better uh, than before he got hurt. He must have been practicing it. It, it just looks – I'm not just talking about three-pointers. I mean, his free-throw shooting, everything looks better. And if that's the case, if he just becomes an okay outside shooter, then, you know, the Cavs have something very special. And remember, he still should be only a senior at USC. So there's a few ways I wanted to go with Terry, but let's get into Mobley while we're talking about mm-hmm. it. I, I was trying to think about what I wanted to see from the Cavs in what you know what fans should hope to see. Mobley is shooting. I know you're not just talking about three pointers, but he's right. shooting 41.7 percent on three pointers mm-hmm. this season. One guy yeah. is higher than him on the whole team, and you could probably guess who that is: Sam Merrill at 44.2. Immortal Sam Merrill. Yeah, and those are the only two guys on the Cavs who are shooting over 40%. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, everybody's talking about the Giannis comparison for Evan Mobley. And I, I just was curious. I'm like, Giannis shoots 25.5% on three-pointers this season. Luka shoots 375 I'm trying to think of guys who are kind of tall, can do a little bit of everything. Like, Evan Mobley right now is at 41.7%. That, that's higher than those two guys and probably <laughs> – I'm trying to project into the playoffs, Terry, and I look, and you were talked about looking back. Last year against the Knicks, when the Cavs needed a bucket, going to Evan Mobley for a three-pointer was not even on the menu. No. I'm going and to this Evan Mobley, time it Evan, is. Evan Mobley at all was not on the menu. That was part of the problem. 
they didn't really have any variation in their offense at all. It broke down, and that's what I want to see come playoff time. You know, will they break down into a lot of the one-on-ones and um, you know pick and roll and and that kind of stuff. By the way, I was looking up something as we were talking. You mentioned Milwaukee. Did you see what their record is since Doc Rivers took over? I haven't been keeping track. What is it? Three and seven. Maybe it all was, was his name, Adrian Griffin, that got fired. Maybe it wasn't all his fault. So that's, I mean, going back to the thing you brought up about yeah. JB, I'm really surprised. I mean, mm-hmm. when you're running a team and you have a coach and a GM, you go into work every day and you ask yourself, is this thing moving in the right direction? Are we on track to get where we want to go? And like after the play and loss, which seems like ancient history right now, like, I get it. You raise the questions like, are we on the right track? And they're like, well, we're going to stick with JB. We think we have a good thing going here. After last season, they're like, well, we need to shore up the three-point shooting, get tougher, get bigger. But we like where we're headed. And, like, for people to be questioning, like, things are going now about as well as they could be going. Mm-hmm. If you go into work at the Cavaliers, you're like, hey, you know what? We, we're on this. This thing is moving forward. We're headed in the right direction. Playoffs, number two in the East. We're playing the right way. Number two in the league in defense. Like, I, I don't understand this uh, Stefanski comparison where people are still holding stuff against JB from two years ago. I, I guess until they win in the playoffs, it won't go away, right? Yes, because two things. The national media does ha- doesn't have any respect for JB. They still have him as sort of the younger coach, the interim coach at uh, Memphis and at Houston. So they don't think he's very good. Secondly, um, we live in the – all that matters is the playoffs. And I remember I got an email from a guy who said, well, I was watching the NBA, one of the ESPN shows, and I didn't see – I'm just – this is what the guy said. I think he said was Kendrick Perkins who said, well, really, the Cavs are going nowhere because when they run into New York in the playoffs, uh, they'll just lose. So I wrote back, well, I guess that's it. Cancel the season. Kendrick Perkins says it's over. I mean, is that what we're down to? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I get it. When you're on, especially when you do those shows for ESPN, have a hot take. And he may honestly believe when they run in New York, they're going to lose. But does that negate? Let's not even try. I mean, because after all, you know what it's going to be. JB's going to be overmatched. And, you know, when all the things they're doing won't work. It's a different team than a year ago. I can't guarantee they would beat the Knicks, but I would like this roster and this style of play much more against New York than where they were at last year. So, that's the key part because, among other things, they, I think, learned something after Garland got hurt that when the ball is in Donovan's hands, the offense is more varied. Whereas when it was kind of on Garland's thing, then it would go to Donovan, and a lot of times he was just trying to take on the world himself. The clock's starting to tick down and, you know, go create. And, of course, they they just put a fence around the middle of the basket. And... Uh, and the Cavs are very stagnant, too, back then, if you remember. There was there was a lot of the standing in the three-point line waiting for somebody to throw them the ball so they could brick it from the corner. I mean, that's kind of how it looked. The Cavs averaged 94 points a game against the Knicks. They only allowed 97. Um, and while they did get pounded on the boards and that, that's like playing a game in the, like, I don't know, 70s or 80s, you know, in, in, back in, in the, the day. old days. Yeah. yeah. The aver- you know what the average NBA team's scoring right now? 115. 115. 115. 
So that's not even an all-star game. That's just a regular game. Yeah, it's just a regular <laughs> game. Yeah, that's why I'm not afraid. You know, you go, you want to see scoring? Just turn on almost any random game. There it is. They're going to throw in. You know, one team will score in the 120s. The other will score like 115. There you go. So my point is. I've seen JB take them from 22 to 44 to 51 wins. They are now in discussion in the playoffs. And it is any, it's a younger team. This is not the, you know, the ancient Lakers. And um, the other thing, and too, I'm yeah, starting, if, go ahead. I was just going to say, if the, if the Cavs fall apart in the first round of the playoffs again, yes, like yeah, it's sure. time for questions. But like I said, you go into work these days, it, it, the Cavaliers and you're like, we got it going. Like, this is what we've been working toward. All right, Terry. And uh, before we move on for the Cavs, I, I did want to say the other thing that I really want to see, and Chris Fedor has been writing about this, is this this toughness narrative that yeah. I think the Cavs have really latched onto, where they're, you know, if there's a scrap during a game, they're all jumping in, they're standing their ground. They, they And you wrote about this before the season. This narrative of the Knicks is going to hang over them mm-hmm. all season in terms of the toughness and the rebounding. And I think they need to continue to play that way in terms of showing that they have this toughness and then take that into the playoffs because that's what it's all about. You know how it is when when the game's on the line and you need a bucket, where are you going to go to get the bucket? And if you don't get the shot down, who's going to get the rebound and, and get up and get it? Toughness is going to be so important for this team, and I think they need to keep working at it. Yeah, so. and they, they need to have team rebounding. It's, it's just one of my things, too. It's not just relying on the two big guys. You need those other guys to really step up and, and help. I think it was uh, Hart for the Knicks averaged like seven rebounds a game from the guard spot. So they can do that. And I've seen, um, I mean, right now Mitchell, I believe, is averaging a career high in rebounds. And so they, it can be done. But this is... You know, a big part of pro sports is entertainment. And when you have a six-month-long season, almost regular season like the NBA does, and then, you know, here come the playoffs, if you just totally downgrade your product and disregard it, I mean, what are you doing, you know, to your fans and that? And that doesn't mean you play your, your starters 40 minutes in every regular season game, but you want this thing to matter. And I know, too, if you get the first two spots in the – um um, in the in the standings, you then will be playing kind of the two teams that had to go through the uh, the play-in tournament. That right. could help. That could really be an advantage too. So we will see. I mean, that's why I want the Cavs up there. I don't particularly want to see them play the Knicks in the first round. Let's see if we get somebody else. Yeah, I think there's a lot of fans who would agree with that, Terry. So, um, all right, anything else on the Cavs? I guess we can look at the schedule coming up. They, they've got a return home game here getting out of the break Thursday against Orlando then they have a quick road trip they're Friday at Philly Sunday at Washington then they come home next Tuesday for a game against Dallas and then they end the month on the 29th next Wednesday at Chicago so pretty tight schedule there because LeBron you know gave his whether he wants a farewell tour or not you know at the all-star break and then you heard the old well maybe the Lakers will draft Ronnie James to keep LeBron I looked up how Bronny's playing now, remember, he had a heart condition that could have been very serious. So as I talk about this, that's hanging over his thing when I talk about him as a player. But he's averaging like five and a half points at USC and shooting 36%. Now, he's coming off. And not playing a ton of minutes either, no, right? Off yeah. the bench, like 15, 18 minutes. So the idea is this kid just needs to play. He needs to get fully healthy and needs to play. And this stupid stuff, and it is stupid stuff, about some NBA team drafting Bronny 
so they can get LeBron. Well, I think it's a disservice to both of them. He's not ready for the NBA, and you don't really want him, and LeBron shouldn't want him in the NBA at this point. He's not ready. He needs to play, and they need to make sure that heart is good and everything else. So that was just something that uh, came to me when I was reading some of that stuff from the All-Star break. Yeah, the NBA, unlike any other league, fans are so into just coming up with these things about what's going to keep guys in a certain place. And just we, we're hearing it with the Donovan Mitchell stuff right now about the, mm-hmm. New York, the Knicks theories. And he, he's not staying here. Like, we don't know what's going to happen until he either signs or doesn't sign that extension. That's, that's like, correct. we just don't know. And he Everything doesn't, else doesn't matter. And he also doesn't pick where he gets traded because I'm sure Cleveland was not number one on his list last summer. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, Utah decided to trade him and the Cavs came in or two summers ago, the Cavs came in with a better offer than the Knicks. And so he went to Cleveland to his credit. I think he's embraced playing here and he's been really great around the city and everything else. You know, I mean, a lot of us sometimes a lot to work somewhere else at some point, but you know, the old thing, uh, live where your feet are planted. And he's done a good job of that. No doubt. No doubt. All right, let's take a break, Terry. When we come back, uh, we'll get into the guardians who are working away at spring training and I will ask you why Carlos Carrasco matters so much to this team. We'll get into that and more when we come back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking. David Campbell, Terry Pluto. Uh, Terry, uh, as you know, Paul Hoynes is out in Goodyear right now covering Guardian Spring Training. A lot going on, a lot of new faces, new manager and Stephen Vogt. And one of the new faces is Carlos Carrasco, who is a fan favorite here in Cleveland. You wrote the other day about why you think he's important to this team, not just from showing the younger guys how to do things and, and culture, but also on the mound in, in terms of what he'll give to this team pitching-wise. Why don't you talk about that for a second? All right, I'm going to throw three names at you. Peyton Battenfield, Noah Syndergaard, and Lucas Giolito. What did they have in common last year? Not great performances. <laughs> not only that, they all started exactly six games for the Guardians. And they were two and eleven with a combined ERA of six point one five. Now, where am I going with this? Oh, by the way, Louis Giolito got two million excuse me, thirty eight million for two years from the Red Sox. His overall ERA last year, he led the American League giving up home runs with forty one. His his overall ERA was four eighty eight. But you could say, well, it was a bad year. But the year before, with the White Sox in 22, his ERA was 490. It's a great country for some starting pitchers. <laughs> okay. So they used 14 different starting pitchers last year. 14. And that's why, including seven starts for Hunter Gaddies and, you know, five starts for Zach Plezak. And we all remember Tukey Torsant's one start. So, in other words, 14 different starting pitchers. I think it's very important if they could get Carrasco, even if he isn't opening in the rotation, to be ready to step in the rotation. Because they don't have a lot of starting pitching depth right now. The depth is all up. The depth all got called up last year. Gavin Williams, Logan Allen, and Tanner Bybee. Uh, Then you have Tristan McKenzie, who pitched uh, 12 innings. And you have uh, Bieber, you know, missed almost three months through wealth right at the end of last year and that. And also, even if Beaver's healthy, what's going to happen to him, David? 
he's going to get traded. Yeah. He's not going to go, you know, if he won't go the distance of the season. Right. So then you look at, okay, excuse me, uh, by the way, McKenzie was 16 innings. But so then you look at, well, who's the next after the five, you know, the big five are Williams, Allen, Bybee, uh, McKenzie, and uh, Bieber. But, okay, who's the next? And I'll ask you this. So who are your backup starters? I mean, this is where Carrasco comes in, but I'm trying yeah. to think of who the uh, – Xavier Curry yep. is one. Um, I don't know. Who else? You've got the list there. Who else is on it in your mind? That's why. That's yeah. the point that I'm making. <laughs> yeah. you know? And Curry, they really like in the bullpen better. Well, they signed Ben Lively. He's 32. His and out of options, right? And he's 8-17 and 17 with a 505 for his career. Gaddis, last year, actually had a 450 ERA with Cleveland, which wasn't the worst. But, you know, he was 2-10 and 10 with a 602 ERA at Columbus. Um, uh, here comes Estino, Daniel Estino. We hear this. He threw 18 innings like in April 2022, and he hasn't pitched since. Look, he's a great kid. If he's healthy, wonderful. He can come fast. but you know, you can't count on that. A guy I do like is Joey Cantillo. He's seven. It was seven and four with a four oh seven ERA between Double A AA and Triple A. And you mentioned Curry, so that's why I think it's important for them to try to get Carrasco healthy and in shape and ready to go because they may need him. There were weeks last year, Terry, where they were like, "Who's starting in two days?" Yes. <laughs> And pulling guys up from Columbus Daniel and trying Norris, to patch things. They had coach, pitching coaches who threw batting practice throwing harder than Daniel oh, Norris. Oh, yeah, and these, and these bullpen games where oh. guys would pitch one or two innings and leave, and they were just holding it together. And I think you're right. I think Carlos Carrasco can give them four to five innings on a regular basis when they need it, either in long relief or as a spot start if there's an injury or something like that. All right, Carrasco, And that's valuable, right? Yeah. Now, last year he had injuries, and that's the problem with Carlos. He's going to be 37, by the way. Um, he's 3-8 and eight with a 673 last year. But in 2022, he was 15-7 and seven with a 397. Now, he, only, he was really a five-and-fly guy. You know, he just barely averaged five innings a start. But if you get five innings a start, you know, with those kind of numbers, you're set. So it's not like he's 100 years away from having been a pretty good pitcher. And it, you could kind of trace it to when he's healthy, he's pretty good. And when he's not, he's not. And so I would, and you, it's a minor league contract, and uh, I love the move. I know this. I mean, Cookie will give you whatever he's got. And, and you know, if he starts to pitch fairly well, you know every time he takes the mound. And he, even if he gives a three runs in five innings, he walks off to a standing ovation. You know how the fans are here. They love their guys. And Yeah, and, and um, Hoinsey had a story up that, where he talked to Carlos, and, and Carrasco was talking about how when he first came to Cleveland, the older guys on the, on the mm-hmm. roster, the pitchers especially, who helped teach him how to be a pro. And if they do trade Shane Bieber, that's going to be an important role for him. Yeah. Um, you know, like helping guide that pitching staff and showing them that here's how you get ready. And, and a lot of the stuff that uh, that Kluber used to do when he was here, you know, in terms of showing guys how to mm-hmm. be a pro, how to how to be professional and all that stuff. I think that's another reason they wanted to bring him back. You're absolutely correct, because then if you don't have him, who do you have? Uh, McKenzie, by the way, has great leadership ability. He's about all the right stuff uh, as a person, as a pitcher, but he's got to prove that elbow is sound. You know, 16 innings is all he threw last year. Uh, that's why 
I, you know, it's hard to find star- when, when Lucas Giolito gets $38 million with the back-to-back ERAs of 488 and 490 coming off giving up 41 homers, it shows you how hard it is to find. I started to say mediocre, but that's not even mediocre. I mean, that's just. He's like the Doc Rivers of uh, veteran pitchers. Yeah, he sort of is. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but that's why I, I looked at that, and then I decided to really kind of look at the depth. This will be posted online tomorrow and also be in tomorrow's Point Dealer, um, where I kind of outline why Carrasco matters. It's not just a feel good, bring them back, you know, cookie to give spring training interviews and sign autographs. Uh, they need to make sure they get this guy in as good a shape as possible, have him ready to go. And remember, earlier in his career, he pitched out of the bullpen. So if needed, he can do that. And he's got such a great attitude. Carrasco, I think, tried to set the record for players signing extensions to stay with Cleveland. Because he, <laughs> he would be a year into his new contract and his agent would be calling, can we sign another one? Because he was, this is even before his uh, leukemia that he beat, you know, he had had a Tommy John surgery and he was always aware um, how it all could go away. And he had offers other places and he wanted to come back to Cleveland yeah. because he, he, he says, he, this is home for me. He didn't even want to go on the open market. You know, his yeah. agent's like, well, we could maybe do this. No, no, I want to stay there. And uh, so that's. That's a good thing, and, and I hope it, it happens because it's one of those stories that, I mean, the fans will just embrace him. All right, Terry, let's move on to something else with the Guardians that I wanted to get into. The I, I thought it was interesting, and you've been writing about this, about how the front office, one thing you have to respect is when they are right, they say they're right, and when they're wrong, they say they're wrong. And this was an interesting quote from Chris Antonetti about, veterans getting at bats versus young guys getting at bats. And here's the quote, and I want to ask you about it. So he says, if we sign someone and commit to giving that person 500 to 550 plate appearances, that's 500 to 550 plate appearances we can't give to other players. We feel like our major league team and development system is at a point where some of those guys we need to provide opportunities for. So if you're a fan, you can look at this two ways, right? One is like, oh, they realize they should have let some of these other guys have some at-bats earlier. And the other thing you can take from it is like, well, of course he's going to say that because they don't have any veterans to give the at-bats to. Like all they have left is young guys. But how did you take that quote and what do you think it means going into spring training into the regular season here in terms of who's going to be getting at-bats? Well, Esteban Florio is probably going to start in center field. You start with him. You know, he had 25 homers at – Triple uh, A for the Yankees, and they like his uh, glove out there, um, so they're going to go with him and see if he could play. They're sitting there and they're not happy with. I think they just uh, really Will Benson. They just totally gave up on him, and it turned out he's at least a good platoon player for the Reds. Uh, Nolan Jones, that's an interesting one because that wasn't just we don't think Nolan Jones could play. We're getting off the roster. They are enamored with Juan Brito. You know, Brito went on to be – he's my guy too. And he went on to become uh, the Baseball American uh, top Guardians prospect of last year. Uh, they really think they have something special in him. But I will tell you this. I know I didn't expect him to go out and hit like 290 and I think 20 homers, whatever it was, for – uh, Colorado. Furthermore, when you break down the stats, home and away, it was not a product of playing in Colorado. His stats were almost identical, home and on the road. So 
that was, I think, when they asked themselves, boy, did we, you know, maybe we could have got Brito for somebody else uh, as opposed to that. And that's a, a something else that uh, they've looked at. And they really, of course, the junior Camonero trade was a disaster. He's one of the top prospects in baseball. They traded him for uh, Tobias Myers, who's, I don't even think he's in organized baseball right now. Camaro at the time was an 18-year-old point in the Arizona Rookie League. Uh, I mean, nobody projected that, but clearly Tampa Bay had a pretty good idea and they thought he would be good. So they, I think they realized we, we can't keep giving up these at-bats before we're sure about people. So as they look at, you know, things there, I mean, you know, they, they decided to dump out an Oscar Gonzalez. You know, he went to the Yankees and uh, just to show kind of where Oscar is right now, the Yankees had him on the 40-man roster. They put him on uh, waivers. Nobody claimed him, and now he's just on their minor league uh, welfare roster. Uh, and so uh, they want to, you know, look at these different players. That's where they're at because they didn't. They're not going to go out and spend big money for somebody just to come in and take over right field or something. So it's a combination of they want to do this, but also they have to do it, and the time the time is now. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, I was a little surprised. I think they gave Ramon Laureano four million. That to me seems a little high for basically that's a platoon player. I was going to platoon with Will Brennan. Now I, you know, I was big on Will Brennan, and Brennan, you know, he was very very mediocre last year. Now. Would that be uh, changed this year? And he plays this, you know, plays again uh, and figures it out, or is that who he is? I think that's a thing they'll ask themselves. Quan uh, is their guy. You know, he's their leadoff guy, left field. He could play center if they want to, but they love him and left. Uh, but when, when you really look at how are the Guardians going to find some runs besides uh, Josh Naylor and Jose? They need to get him and his back to playing closer to what he did two years ago, closer to the guy that gave $100 million over I think, seven years or whatever it was. And I, human has actually started to hit more like himself at the end of the year. Uh, and I think that that's a, a guy who could bounce back and play well for them. And then you're in the Kyle Manzardo. They wanted him, and they also uh, – uh, Devison, De Los Santos, I hope I got the first name right, the kid that they drafted from mm-hmm. Arizona, double-A. Uh, although I have to admit, a guy that's 255 in double-A, even though he's 21, he's 20-some homers. Making that jump to the majors, to me, seems like, like a real stretch uh, for that to happen. All right, well, the Guardians will be working out in good year. The games will be starting soon, and the opener on March 28th in Oakland. I, this was an interesting stat I wanted to share, Terry, with all the discussion we've had about the outfield situation. This is from Brooks Gate on Twitter, also known as X. He, there's a chart of consecutive years with a different starter on opening day at a position. So yeah. just to explain that, the San Francisco Giants have gone 17 years with a different left fielder. <laughs> On opening wow. day. Well, I guess everybody, we're not the only ones, huh? So they're number one. The Guardians are number two at what position? You could probably guess this one pretty quickly. I would go right field. Right field. The Guardians yeah. are number two on this list with a different right fielder for 12 straight years on opening day. Uh, the White Sox are third with 11 years at second base, and the White Sox are also fourth, a 10-year streak at DH. So uh, you can be on no, here that, more than once. <laughs> that's odd. D, you know, D, DH, um, you know, so it's just you think you just find a bat for a couple of years. But 
Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we'll probably be seeing the Guardians have a 13-year streak here in right field pretty soon of a different starter on opening day. Well, if they, start, if they start Loriano, who, who the heck did start last year in right field? I don't even know. You, you had to bring this up. It was was it Oscar? Oscar yeah, Gonzalez. that's right. It was Oscar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was Oscar. Yep. Yeah. So we will have a new oh, one. Oh, how soon we, we forget. <laughs> Terry, your guy. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, hey, Terry, before we move on to the um, – Last part of the show here with the Browns. I did want to mention, check out our new restaurant and dining and drinking podcast. It's called Dine Drink CLE. And it's some of the great experts we have in our newsroom who cover food and dining. Josh Duke, Alex Darris. Uh, they're they're joined by Paris Wolf, Pete Chikarian, Mark Bona. People have been covering the food scene. They did a, a thing last week on local chains, so places that started out as one restaurant and have kind of expanded, and what the state of local chains is. So check that out. It's called Dine, Drink, Clee, and you can find it anywhere you get podcasts. So, all right, Terry, um, we're kind of the week before the NFL Combine here. And the Browns have locked in on their coaching staff. I guess we could run through some of this. Um, yeah, with Bill Cal- yeah, yeah, with Bill Callahan's departure, they've kind of brought in uh, Andy Dickerson, and his assistant at offensive line is going to be Roy Istvan. I hope I got Roy's last name pronounced correctly. Uh, Alex Van Pelt is gone as offensive coordinator. Of course, Ken Dorsey is replacing him. Stump Mitchell is gone as running backs coach, and he was replaced by Deuce Staley. Uh, tight ends coach T.J. McCartney is gone. He was replaced by Tommy Reese, the former offensive coordinator at Alabama. And over on defense, Ben well, Bloom, well, the defensive line on, coach. Who's back Sorry? on offense? Who's back on offense? One guy. Yeah. Ch- Chad O'Shea. Right, right. That's it. Um, yeah. Before we You're go right. to defense, that tells me they really think something was wrong beyond we want to – um, have a new set of eyes or whatever. Now, part of it, Callahan was not forced out. He left because to go to work for his son. Right. Nonetheless, they, they there's something there that well, the front officer Stefanski or both did not like about the coaches on that side of the ball. I'm just just saying that because when you were even if Callahan had stayed, um, okay, so you you replace four instead of five. That's still a lot. It is. And I, I think the Callahan departure, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, Terry. I've heard people on talk radio in town saying, well, you know, Bill Callahan's departure isn't going to be that big of a deal because the offensive line is really good. And it's like, it's a chicken and egg thing, man. Like the reason the offensive line is really good is because Bill Callahan was coaching it. I mean, I know there's talent there too, but you asked Dewan Jones or you ask Wyatt Teller, who, who signed a huge extension, like who who made a difference in your career? And they're going to say Bill Callahan. So I, I think that is a big loss. And I know that it's nothing in, it's against Andy Dickerson. I, I know he's got a good track record, but you don't find guys like Bill Callahan very often who can Im- impact an offensive line like he did. So I think I think it's going to be a bigger loss than people think. Well, if you kind of go through the, the starters, okay, uh, Ethan Posick never played as well in his career till he came to the Browns. Uh, and Good one. Wyatt, yep. Wyatt Teller never played as well in his career until he came to the Browns. And then you get now Batonio is the Joe Thomas of this era. It's like Thomas, it didn't matter who was coaching. I'm great. And it's it's kind of an, I prefer to have a great coach or whatever, but it's like he's in his own world of greatness. So Batonio uh, is sort of exempt from this discussion. Then, as you mentioned, Dewan Jones. Uh, I know the one thing that's frustrated Callahan and the Browns is they just can't get more out of Jedrick Wills. 
you know, that was Callahan really believed he can make that move from right tackle at Alabama to left. And it's just been okay and sometimes not even that. But when you look at where Callahan works as magic is, like you mentioned, Dewan Jones. And then some of these other guys periodically that have filled in. And now his name escapes me. Gardner. Who was the guy playing tackle at the end of the year? Jaron Christian. Jaron. I can never remember if it's Christian yep. Jaron or Jaron Christian. And, you, I mean, he's out there in, in big games playing. And remember that uh, who the, Blake Hans in the playoff game? It's like he walks out there and, and in Pittsburgh and Baker goes, who are you? He goes, oh, my name is Blake. Okay, <laughs> well, you're over there. And he actually was not terrible. He still bounces around the NFL, Blake Hans, by the, uh, playing. So, that's where, you, to your extent, or to your point, that underlines what Callahan meant. And very few offensive line coaches, they're like pitching coaches. They're in their own world. They speak their own language. Um, it's hard to find good ones. Now, the, Callahan worked with Dickerson in New York with the Jets for a year. He also, Dickerson works for George Warhop. I hope I got the last name right. He's a legendary offensive line coach. Uh, he was in Cleveland. He, he was kind of a, a Mangini guy. and He's been elsewhere. He, he's terrific. I believe he's with Tampa Bay now. I'm, I hope I'm not messing that up. Uh, but they so they looked at that's part of the reason they wanted Dickerson in here. And um, Iverson they brought in from Philly. You know, these guys are supposed to be good on the different RPOs and the stuff from the shotgun and the blocking schemes that go with that. So I don't know enough to know on that. I just know, but when we break it down, player by player, what Bill Callahan met to the Browns, um, he made a lot of money for Wyatt Teller, but Tony already, nice contract for, for uh, Posick, and kept some guys in the NFL who were basically on the way out uh, to get some more money there. And he's, I mean, DeWan Jones, the, the Browns were ridiculed for taking him. Uh, in the national media and everything. And you remember, you know, the old thing about him throwing up in the first practice or second practice. And and then when he comes back, you know, they work him in. And um, and he's not that pro football focuses everything, but it's something. And, you know, he's ranked, well, I think, in the top third of, uh, of tackles last year. Yeah, and beyond that, the guys you were talking about that they plugged in, Terry, it's yeah. like uh, when they plugged in an offensive lineman, most times it was like a good baseball umpire where you didn't notice that they yeah. they weren't messing up, they weren't blowing blocks, maybe they weren't opening huge holes for the running backs, but it was like just good, serviceable, and that's Bill Callahan, like that's not an accident, and you know, things might, the standard might stay the same, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate the, the loss of, uh, so, of Bill so that's, that's a big deal. And that, and that is not one they wanted to happen at all, but the others, um, to me, uh, Alex Van Pelt got a job right away. And with Vegas as an offensive coordinator, cause the average I've written about that recently, I kind of looked at Pittsburgh. I looked at Baltimore. Those guys last about three years, offensive coordinator, even with these coaches that have been there a long time. Um, they just, it's a position where you either move up or out. If you're really a good offensive coordinator, you're going to be in the head coaching mix somewhere. And if things go bad on offense, you're out and they're going to find another guy. Probably a guy who got fired somewhere else and they'll bring him in there and think that, well, he got sort of a bum rap when he got fired. Like They probably, with the Vegas goes, well, what did Van Pelt do wrong? He got a bum rap over there. We'll bring him in over here. Yeah, that's it's just a like weird Ken Dorsey. Profe- <laughs> it's a weird profession. Yeah, and Dorsey, it's a weird profession. 
and you better be ready to move yep. and multiple times. And we've seen that even with somebody with Jim Schwartz's track record, he's had to move yep. around mm-hmm. a fair bit too. So, all right, well, the Browns will be going to the combine next week in Indianapolis. And then, well, we're getting toward draft season. It's going to be here before we know it. So we'll be talking uh, in upcoming weeks about what we think the Browns should be looking for and key needs. So, all right, I guess that's it for the Browns. I guess, uh, so Terry, we've got a few letters that we're down to our last handful here of people we asked them to write in where they're from and why they're Cleveland sports fans. And so we've got a few here. We had a good time with these last week and we got some more good ones here today. So uh, this one comes to us from Richard Kallenbach and Richard says, I've lived in Fremont, Michigan for 33 years. I was in Texas Seven years before that, my dad was a Packer and White Sox fan, being from Iowa. However, our family moved to Port Clinton in 1960 when I was five. I soon gave up my dad's teams and became an Indians and Browns fan. Sam McDowell and Leroy Kelly were my favorites. I was a Cavs fan from the beginning, too. Port Clinton is equidistant from Cleveland and Detroit, so there there are fans of both cities' teams there. That made it fun as a kid. Now, as a 68-year-old retired teacher, I have a part-time dry cleaner delivery job. I enjoy your podcast and several other Cleveland podcasts while I'm driving. By the way, Terry, you and I had a conversation courtside at the old Coliseum when we both had quite a bit more hair. I've been a (laughs) longtime fan of your columns. All right. Thanks for that, Richard. That's a fun one from the uh, with the Port Clinton tie. So, well, um, even by the way, when I had more hair, even back then, I was so stupid. I didn't realize just because you do it longer on the sides doesn't mean it will grow on top. So <laughs> I right really with looked you. like, you know, a stone Ben Franklin. It was not a good look. <laughs> That'd be a good band name. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, the, the, the Ben Franklin Stoners. That's right, right. All right, this next letter comes from uh, Reverend Alan Wilson from Interlochen, Michigan. And he says, uh, Alan says, I moved away from Brexville, Broadview Heights when I was 15 years old. We moved to northern Michigan. I'm now 64. And back when I was a kid, it was not as easy to follow an out-of-state team like it is today. Late at night, I could get 3WE in Cleveland to listen to Indians or Cavs games. Of course, it would fade in and out during the broadcast. (laughs) Being a Cleveland fan has not always been easy, but I love to follow the Guardians, Browns, Cavs. It keeps me close to my hometown. To this day, I defend Cleveland and let people know what a great place it was to live and grow up. Terry Pluto is my favorite sports writer, and he even once sent me a free autograph book when I emailed him and told him how much I enjoyed his faith columns, since I am a pastor of a church today in Interlochen, Michigan. So thanks for that, Reverend Wilson. Appreciate that email. So uh, you sent a lot of books out, Terry, to people. I bet there's a lot of stories like this where you've Well, there's a bunch sent- of books I didn't sell over the years. <laughs> so that's that's been the yeah. nice thing and david gray my publisher has always been able to uh, give me them either free or at a very good because he knows it's good pr and uh, i do too and a lot of times teachers and pastors or just someone that i sense uh, could use something i could always go down the basement and see what i could come up with um and that's uh, uh you know i just i just appreciate like we talked about the response we got from the uh people about the survey uh you guys track the numbers of how the podcast is growing um i'm just you know it's one of those things i look at and i'm just so grateful you know all these years really to be able to do this yeah me too and uh here's our last letter terry this one is from john defini and john says 
Hey guys, I currently live in North Carolina, but I grew up in Parma. I have not lived in Northeast Ohio since I graduated from John Carroll in 1978, but I've passionately followed Cleveland sports all along all three major sports. I remember seeing the hapless Indians at Cavernous Municipal Stadium where foul balls would come to a complete stop before fans (laughs) could get to them. (laughs) I remember being fortunate enough to get free tickets to games from the Cleveland press for getting straight A's and bat day when they actually gave out regulation size bats. Can you imagine? I remember oh. seeing the, <laughs> I remember seeing All the right, cast. Hold on. That brings back. Right, let's talk about memory. the bats. Let's hear this. Yeah. Because, well, two things. Number one, if you actually hit a real ball with them, they cracked quickly when I was a kid. <laughs> but the other is when I was covering, when I was a baseball writer before Hoynes and they were at that old, um, the old stadium, the press box was like an erector set. It was just all aluminum. And those kids, would have their bat and their and they always have a Sunday doubleheader and they're pounding on the roof with the bat. I mean, it really <laughs> was like a bad migraine headache commercial. And what I learned after my first year or two was I rarely took days off, but that bat, bat day doubleheader, I, <laughs> I begged the sports editor. Let, I said, I think that's a great day. You know, Roberta and I need to just kind of get away for the day. <laughs> so that uh, is my classic. memory of those bats i remember the days too when that you'd get those and i never used to bang the press box with them back in chicago but uh would have been fun <laughs> yeah now they're probably right. afraid people start a, a gang war with i mean they, <laughs> no really they when they ask about what to give out you don't want anything dangerous anymore oh yeah a, something that people could throw it's a sad and, commentary yeah. but it's true uh, but by the way those bats were not exactly uh major league quality let's just leave it at that <laughs> but you know that one time the old tribe gave out. I am not kidding. They used to get like big lots versions of just extra things to give out on different days. It was Mother's Day. And some of the mothers on Mother's Day were actually handed deodorant as they came in. No way. Yes. What a way <laughs> to tell mom you care. Oh, man. Well, it was a good smelling ballpark that day, I guess, for everybody. <laughs> but man, oh man, Matt, you won't see that promotion anymore. They had like so. three different items, but one of them was deodorant. <laughs> ah. All right. Well, let's finish up John's letter here. John says, I remember seeing the Cavs in their inaugural year at the old arena when victories were almost non-existent, pretending we were Frank Ryan, Leroy Kelly, Paul Warfield, mm-hmm. Gary Collins, Ernie Green, or Lou the Toe in backyard football. Cleveland sports fans of my generation have been blessed with so many great broadcasters and journalists over the years. Score, Tate, Coleman, Dudley, Franklin, Harry Jones, Hamilton, Grant, Donovan, Schneider, Heaton, Livingston, and Pluto, just to name a few off the top of my head. My favorite writer has been Terry and Loose Balls and the Curse of Rocky Calavito are two of my favorite sports books ever. Thank you, folks, for doing this podcast. It keeps me up with the goings-on in the world of Cleveland sports by two folks who are knowledgeable and great communicators. Thanks for that, John. And he says, P.S., Terry, I played Little League for years in Parma, where Terry's brother, Tom, was a tough and respected umpire. I'm definitely of a certain age, he says. So. Yes, he was. He was there. Everybody the, knows your brother, Tom, man. Yeah, like well, back in that, yeah, in the 60s and that. And, and he uh, went Cleveland Central Catholic. They combined four small Catholic high schools, the Cleveland Central Catholic. My brother was the very first basketball and baseball coach at that school. He was like 26 years old or something like that, too, when he uh, when he got that job. So um, and then Tom Waiter moved to Florida, where he's lived for the last, like, 40-some years. So, All right. I think that's it for today. We did your book already. Is there anything else yeah. you want to get into? 
No, I think that'll do it. All right. I did want to mention real quick about Terry's newsletter. You can go to cleveland.com slash newsletters and sign up for that. It takes about a minute, and you can get everything in your inbox every Monday that Terry writes. And I did not give out our email address yet. If you have a question, a comment, a funny story, something about deodorant or baths that you want to share with us, send that along to sports at cleveland.com, and we will be sure to include it on an upcoming podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time on Terry's Talking.